0: Sleep apnea was first described in humans in 1965. As recent as the 1970s, tracheostomy was a standard treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. This is where the surgeon created an opening in the patient's windpipe or trachea and inserted a tube to allow air to bypass their upper air passage. Surgery, however, was invasive and came with many risks of infections and prolonged recovery and associated with social stigma. It wasn't until 1980 that Dr. Colin Sullivan was the first to test the idea of positive pressure applied through the nasal airway to alleviate obstructed passageways, hence born the idea for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure Machine, or CPAP. Such positive airway pressure machines have replaced previously existing negative pressure ventilators, historically known as the iron lung which were used for patients with polio or muscular dystrophy. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, Take Your Breath Away, Understanding Obstructive Sleep Apnea. Let us start with a clinical case. A 45-year-old female teacher is concerned about progressive daytime fatigue. She complains of early morning headache, awakening unrefreshed from sleep, and remembers awakening multiple times each night for no reason. She wakes up with dry mouth at times. She has difficulty concentrating with teaching courses at school and needs to take daytime naps. Her BMI is 34, and she has uncontrolled hypertension despite being adherent to all her antihypertensive medications. Time for our Minute Physiology. It is important to note that there are two types of sleep apneas, central and obstructive sleep apnea. Central sleep apnea is less common and is characterized by cessation of ventilation during sleep due to lack of drive to breathe from the brain. A central sleep apnea event is defined as a greater than 10 second pause in ventilation with no associated respiratory effort. This is in contrast to obstructive sleep apnea which we will abbreviate as OSA, and which will be the focus of today's episode. OSA occurs due to the recurrent collapse of the pharyngeal airway during sleep, resulting in either substantially reduced airflow called hypoapnea or complete cessation of airflow called apnea. Patients with OSA will have ongoing breathing effort. These disruptions lead to intermittent blood gas disturbances, elevated CO2, which is called hypercapnia, and low blood oxygen or hypoxemia. These changes cause surges of sympathetic activation, culminating in brief cortical arousal or actual awakening from sleep, allowing the pharynx to open and the obstruction to be relieved. Risk factors associated with obstructive sleep apnea include age over 50, male gender, tobacco use, alcohol, sedative use, being postmenopausal and history of hypertension. And specific airway anatomy such as small airways, bony deficiencies such as the position of the lower jaw, or maxillary deficiency. OSA is important to recognize and manage because it is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Complications of OSA include significant sleepiness and fatigue, resistant hypertension, right and left ventricular dysfunction, myocardial infarction, atrial fibrillation, pulmonary hypertension, stroke, driving accidents, GERD, diabetes, and depression. Let's talk about our approach. OSA is usually not a reason why patients come to the emergency department. Instead, it is usually diagnosed in a clinical setting, picked up incidentally in patients who are being worked up for excessive sleepiness or resistant hypertension or it can be picked up as something to screen for when you see patients in a bariatric bed or bariatric-sized chair. Internists also usually screen OSA as part of their perioperative workup. A generalized approach includes considering other conditions that could mimic OSA presentation of daytime sleepiness and unrefreshing sleep, such as insufficient sleep as a result of sleep deprivation from poor sleeping hygiene, dysregulations of circadian rhythm due to jet lag or shift work, narcolepsy, which is characterized by vivid hallucinations at sleep onset, and cataplexy, which is defined as sudden loss of muscle tone, or other conditions contributing to daytime sleepiness, such as periodic limb disorder or restless leg syndrome, which is characterized as uncontrollable urge to move legs, most often at night while trying to sleep. OSA shares many overlapping risk factors for OHS, called obesity hypoventilation syndrome, which is defined as a combined presence of obesity, defined as body mass index above 30, with awake arterial hypercapnia of PaCO2 above 45 of mercury in the absence of other causes of hypoventilation. OHS is a diagnosis of exclusion, while OSA can be diagnosed with polysomnography, as we will discuss later. A detailed history includes asking about common symptoms seen in OSA including asking about any witnessed reports of habitual, loud, disruptive snoring, any nocturnal gasping or choking, or apneic episodes witnessed where the patient stops breathing briefly. Morning headache is also a common symptom, which is related to increased levels of serum carbon dioxide during an apneic episode. You can also ask about their level of daytime sleepiness, which can be characterized by the Epworth sleepiness scale. This asks patients about chance of dozing off while sitting and reading, watching TV, as a passenger in a car, or while sitting and talking to someone, with responses being slight, moderate, or high chances of dozing. It is rated out of a total score of 24, with scores 16-24 to being severe excessive daytime sleepiness. Based on the 2013 JAMA OSA Rational Clinical Examination Systematic Review The most useful observation for identifying patients with OSA was nocturnal choking or gasping, which has a likelihood ratio of 3.3. Snoring is common in sleep apnea, but given how common snoring is in the general population, it has a low specificity and is not actually useful for establishing a diagnosis of OSA. Besides the common symptoms, it is also important to ask if your patient currently drives a vehicle and if they are a commercial driver and ask them to quantify alcohol use, other recreational drugs, and sedative prescription drugs like benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, opioids, or antihistamines. Pay close attention to our next segment on physical exam, as this often makes for a great OSCE station due to the various physical examination findings. On physical exam, first start with vitals. In patients with OSA, you might note hypertension, hypoxia, or irregular heart rate due to association with atrial fibrillation. When thinking about the physical exam, it can be helpful to divide it into the risk factors for the presence of obstructive sleep apnea and then the consequence of a diagnosis. We will start by examining for the presence of risk factors for OSA. Comment on the patient's BMI. On a head and neck exam, inspect for facial structure abnormalities that increase the risk of OSA, including retronathia, which is posterior positioning of the mandible, and micronathia, with mandibular hypoplasia and overbite, septal deviation, macroglossia, and nasal polyps. The nasal polyps has nothing to do with diagnosing OSA, but has a great deal to do with the tolerance to CPAP. You should also measure neck circumference. There is a greater risk of OSA when the neck circumference is 17 inches or larger in men, 16 inches or greater in women. You should also measure thyromental distance, which is the distance from the thyroid notch to the tip of the jaw. The normal distance is greater than 6.5 centimeters or greater than 3 fingers width. Anything less than that may be associated with OSA. Ask your patient to open their mouth to visualize the back of the pharynx to determine the malampati score. The more difficult it is to visualize the soft palate and tonsil, the higher probability of OSA. Now, we will look for the consequences of OSA. On inspection, you may find asterisks in keeping with hypercarbia. Facial plethora may be in keeping with secondary erythrocytosis. On cardiac examination, you may note signs of pulmonary hypertension or core pulmonale. Assess for elevated JVP. On auscultation, you may note irregularly irregular rhythm, in keeping with atrial fibrillation. OSA results in a hypoxic pathway that causes pulmonary vasoconstriction in response to alveolar hypoxia, increasing pulmonary vascular resistance and contributing to the development of pulmonary hypertension. Due to pulmonary artery pressure being high, it slams the pulmonary valve shut at the end of systole, producing a loud P2. In fixed wide S2 on auscultation. The right ventricle has to pump extra hard to get blood across to a high-pressure pulmonary artery, resulting in right ventricular hypertrophy, which can be palpated as a right ventricular heave at the left sternal border. With severe pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular dysfunction, this can cause tricuspid regurgitation and an S3 heart sound. OSA can also result in uncontrolled hypertension, which can lead to left ventricular hypertrophy and an S4 heart sound. Look for peripheral edema in keeping with right heart failure. On abdominal exam, assess for hepatomegaly, pulsatile liver, and assess for ascites. Interestingly, you will note that while OSA is a disorder of ventilation, there is very little that you will find on the respiratory exam. For investigations, you can consider sending blood work to check for TSH, electrolytes, lipids, HbA1c, and an ECG to investigate other coexisting comorbidities such as diabetes or renal dysfunction. An arterial blood gas may show elevated CO2. The Stop Bang Questionnaire is also particularly helpful to determine if the patient has low, intermediate, or high risk for OSA. The questionnaire is an acronym for the following screening questions. S. Snoring Do you snore loudly enough that it can be heard through closed doors or your partner elbows you for snoring so loudly? T. Tired. Do you feel tired, fatigued, or sleepy during the daytime? O. Observed. Has anyone observed you stop breathing or choking or gasping during your sleep? P. Pressure. Do you have or are you being treated for high blood pressure? B. BMI. BMI. Do you have a body mass index more than 35 kilograms over meters squared? Age. Are you older than age 50? N. Neck. Is your neck size larger than 16 inches? And G. Gender. Are you male? If there is a yes response to 3 to 4 of the questions, then the patient is considered intermediate risk. And if it was a yes response to 5 to 8 questions, then the patient is considered high risk of OSA. The gold standard diagnostic test for OSA is a sleep study, also called polysomnography. During a sleep study, patients are connected to a variety of monitoring devices to measure heart rate, respiratory rate, inspiratory and expiratory airflow, chest wall movements, oxygen saturation, presence or absence of snoring, body position, any abnormal movements or vocalizations. Electroencephalographic activity and eye movements are also used to identify the stages of sleep. The most important piece of information the study provides is regarding the number of apneic and hypoapneic episodes. Apnea is defined as breathing cessation for greater than 10 seconds, and hypoapnea is reduced respiratory airflow by 30%, with a 4% decrease in oxygen saturation. The number of apnea and hypoapnea events are recorded per hour of sleep to calculate the Apnea-Hypoapnea Index, or AHI. Mild OSA has an AHI of 5 to 15 per hour. Moderate OSA has an AHI of 15 to 30 per hour, and severe OSA is defined as an AHI of over 30 per hour. To be diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea, you must have an AHI of more than 5, plus evidence of daytime sleepiness, and two other symptoms of OSA. Non pharmacological treatment is the first line in OSA and can be very effective. Patients should be counseled on weight loss, smoking cessation, avoiding CNS depressants, including sedative medications and alcohol proper sleep hygiene, and treatment for nasal congestion. Encouraging patients to sleep in a non-supine position may also have some mild benefit. For those individuals with mild to moderate disease, an oral appliance can be trialed, particularly those with retronathia and with the ability to anteriorly advance their lower mandible. An oral appliance is essentially an oral mandibular device placed within the mouth to prevent the tongue from blocking the throat to help keep the airway open during sleep. The main choice of therapy for these patients with symptoms or asymptomatic individuals with severe OSA is a breathing device called Continuous Positive Airway Pressure Machine, or CPAP. A CPAP machine delivers humidified air through the nose at a pre-specified pressure, which stents open airways. This continuous pressure overcomes anatomical areas of collapse or obstruction, thereby preventing pauses in breathing. Compliance with CPAP therapy is defined as a minimum of four hours of use overnight for over 70% of the nights. BiPAP, called bi-level positive airway pressure, provides two levels of positive pressure, which augments the patient's ventilation and responds to changes in the recipient's breathing. It is normally started after an adequate trial of CPAP has been proven ineffective, and BiPAP has been shown to be more effective in the sleep lab. An alternative option, known as auto-adjustable positive airway pressure machine, abbreviated APAP, may also be used for its ability to offer different pressure rates throughout sleep, based on how the patient inhales. This is particularly helpful in a hospital setting, where the patient's home CPAP settings are unknown. In selected patients, other surgical options such as tonsillectomy or uvulopalatopharyngoplasty can be offered. Physicians must also remember to report to the Ministry of Transportation, except for the following reasons. If the driver has untreated OSA with AHI of less than or equal to 20 events per hour, characterized as mild to moderate OSA, or the driver does not admit to experiencing excess sleepiness during major wake period, or the driver's OSA is being effectively treated. The sleep apnea cardiovascular endpoints, or SAVE, trial was published in 2016 in the New England Journal of Medicine by McCovey et al. Patients with known coronary artery disease or cerebrovascular disease and moderate to severe OSA were randomized to using CPAP versus usual care. A primary endpoint of cardiovascular outcomes after a mean of 3.7 years of follow-up was measured. This trial reported that there was, in fact, no cardiovascular benefit of treatment using CPAP in patients with OSA who had pre-existing cardiovascular disease and minimal sleepiness. However, there was a significant reduction in the secondary points of patient-reported sleepiness, anxiety, and depression. An important limitation was that adherence to the use of CPAP was below accepted guidelines for adequate use, which is four hours per night. Hence, the significance of this result is still heavily debated. So, as a bottom line, treat sleep apnea in patients with multiple comorbidity, or symptomatic, and if there is significant desaturation, regardless of the degree, because the pathophysiology of all complications is the oxidative stress and the autonomic liability at sleep. Thank you for listening to today's episode. This episode was written by Dr. Jennifer DeCruz, Internal Medicine Resident, and reviewed by Dr. Alia Kashgari, Respirology, and Dr. Karen Gookers, General Internal Medicine. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. This podcast was recorded by Zara Morali and produced by Nathan Dupnik. Music production by Laxman Zavantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Also check out theintranetwork.com for an associated infographic. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.